0: This is the InFocus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the InFocus podcast. I'm your host, Jee Sampath The central government has introduced the Forest Conservation Amendment Bill 2023. It did so on March 29th this year when it introduced this bill in the Lok Sabha. Uh, Generally speaking, the bill exempts certain types of forest land from the protection afforded by this Act. It also expands the list of activities that can be carried out on forest land. And both these aspects of this amendment bill have drawn an outcry from conservationists and environmentalists who are saying that the amendment opens the doors for large-scale commercial exploitation of land that was hitherto protected under this Act. And the government has also not inspired much confidence regarding its intentions by sending the bill to a select committee of parliament which has no representatives from the opposition instead of referring it to the Standing Committee on Science, Technology, Environment and Forest for, for the scrutiny. And now with the Select Parliamentary Committee accepting submissions from the public on the bill, there is renewed debate about its provisions and what they mean for India's forests. Will this bill safeguard India's already depleted and depleting forests or will it sell them out? We explore this question in great detail in this episode of the InFocus podcast. And we have with us Kanchi Kohli, who is a researcher in environment, law and governance and co-author of the book Development of Environmental Laws in India. Kanchi, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you sparing time for this podcast.
1: Thank you. It's good to be back uh, on the podcast.
0: So, Kanchi, I remember we did this podcast uh, some months ago on forest conservation rules, you know, I think which was notified last June, uh, where the government updated the conservation rules under the same Forest Conservation Act 1980. Now, these updated rules, when they were notified, they evoked fears that they would empower private developers to divert forest land for commercial purposes. Now, six, seven, eight months down the line, we have forest conservation amendment a bill, which is the tweaking of the law itself and not the rules. And again, similar apprehensions are being expressed. So for the purpose of our listeners, you know, who may not understand the technicalities of this, can you explain what's the difference in function and intent, if any, between the rule changes of last year and the proposed law changes in this amendment bill right now?
1: Yeah, I think uh, what first we need to really uh, contextualize is that uh, forest governance in India is a very vexed, complex and conflicted uh, federal issue. Forests are on the concurrent list of India's constitution. So the power to manage govern forests is both the center and the state government. And both the forest conservation rules, which are enacted under the Forest Conservation Act that is currently under amendment, uh, basically deal with three aspects. Uh, processes related to uh, diversion uh, for from forest land to non forest use uh, forest to non forest use de reservation of forests from uh, recorded forest to uh, to other, any other category and felling of trees on forest land Uh, And for all these three purposes, state governments and any other user agency have to take prior permissions from the central government. So the overall context under which you need to view both the changes under the Forest Conservation Act, the the, the Amendment Act, as well as the rules, is this overall governance framework within which the processes of forest rights, et cetera, are intertwined uh, ever since the enactment of the Forest Rights Act. So broadly, what 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 is what are we talking about? Uh, you know, in these two changes, the forest conservation rules basically elaborated and inter- reinterpreted. You know, the procedure for forest land diversion, the nitty-gritties, the bureaucratic nitty-gritties. Amongst the various concerns, two big concerns were uh, the reinterpreting of the uh, the p- previous rules and circulars to say the the consent of the village assemblies or gram sabhas is not a prerequisite for the central government to issue forest diversion permissions, uh, or forest, what is popularly known as forest clearances. Uh, And and these processes can be looked at uh, by a project steering committee, which uh, it it was not explicitly stated, but uh, it is assumed that these processes will be looked at at the state level, uh, which is looking at the rights recognition process. And some of these things we had discussed in the previous podcast as well. The second vexed issue was the introduction of something called the accredited compensatory afforestation, which was basically um, offsetting loss of forests, uh, you know, diverted for other large infrastructure, et cetera, purposes. And and how do you actually make land available for for that accredited uh, compensatory afforestation, which is a prerequisite for all user, user agencies? so this is broadly uh, what what the forest conservation rules uh, were all about and the, the the range of concerns raised with respect to forest rights ecological uh, issues related to plantations etc the present set of uh, amendments is of the parent act it's of the forest conservation act of 1980 and this uh, amendment basically is trying to reorganize the scope and clarify the scope Uh, of the forest scope and jurisdiction of the Forest Conservation Act, both in terms of what kinds of lands the Act will apply on and what kind of activities it would be under its jurisdiction. And to reiterate, this is basically with respect to the prior permission that needs to be taken by the central government. So this is broadly what it is. is. And uh, so the overall, you know, if you see the overall objective of both these legislations is to uh, to streamline certain procedures jurisdictions of this the legislation uh, and and uh, also interpret uh, the scope of the law keeping in mind various judicial interpretations etc and we can discuss that in subsequent questions
0: right so broadly speaking from what you are saying what i understood is that the rule changes last year had to do with the interpretation of the mother act or the i don't know the father act and and the and the current amendment is to do with reorganizing the scope of application or jurisdiction of the act itself
1: yes so the rules was with respect to procedures related to uh, both di- forest land forest land diver- diversion and re reservation to other uses and comp- and offsetting that loss So the the bureaucratic procedures that are what is the step by step procedure that is required
0: Okay, okay. Now, coming to one big question, uh, which doesn't get perhaps enough attention as we talk, discuss all these forest conservation issues and debates is, do we have a working definition of what a forest is in India? I mean, how are forests understood? Because, I mean, we keep reading reports from time to time, which sort of indicate or suggest that the government is sort of reframing what constitutes forest land or forest. So, from the point of view of safeguarding, from the point of view of protection, How do we define a forest in India? Is there any particular base minimum requirement for some stretch of territory or land to be considered a forest?
1: So I think this, again, I think um, has repeatedly come back, come to the table in the the long-term history of uh, forest governance in terms of what do you mean by forests? And I think there is a definition that the forest departments go by in terms of what the definition of forest is. But... uh, there have been attempts by the Ministry of Environment, Forests, as well as agencies interested in in uh, defining forests. And how do you actually on how to understand how do you actually interpret and understand what is a forest socially and ecologically? So you know what what parameters should be applied at. Now, to the best of my understanding, there is no final conclusion on in terms of what should what is a social what should be constituting a forest ecologically and socially or socio ecologically however we need to understand with, with respect to these amendments also there are two aspects which will be very important to understand with respect to uh, the definition of forest one is what is the administrative definition of forest so for the purposes of governance by by uh, by the government what is the administrative definition of forest and if you go by uh, if you go by um, this you know what what biannually comes out as the state of forest report that considers and to calculate what is india's forest cover that looks at recorded forest land as well as trees outside forest areas as uh, broadly to say this is india's forest cover but if you see it further for the purposes of the forest conservation act which is it's it's a it's it's that's complicated because there is there is a definition to say okay this is india's forest cover for an external use but there is also a definition that is restricted for the purposes of the application of the forest conservation act so basically you may you may recognize a large area as as a forest cover but this act applies on xyz lands and you know uh, until recently and, and and even as this um, bill is pending all recorded government recorded forest lands whether it is state government or central government, and any land on which the dictionary meaning of forest can apply constitutes forest for the purposes of the application of the Forest Conservation Act.
0: So, what is the dictionary meaning of what is the dictionary meaning of forest? I'm
1: sorry, there is, no, there is no dictionary meaning of forest really. Uh, in it, and every state is interpreting its own. So, basically, what the what the Supreme Court in 1996 said that there is all lands on which the dictionary meaning of forest um, is is applicable uh, is should be considered forest for the purposes of the Forest Conservation Act. Prior permissions under the Forest Conservation Act now each state government came up with was uh, was asked to come up with its own criteria to identify uh, what they would consider as deemed forest some states were managed to do it some states did not manage to do it so i think so this is in some senses you know um, and and because this was constantly litigated upon it was it was uh, you know conflicted uh, to some senses i think what the government is trying to do is sort out that matter to say that from here on, uh, with the coming in of the new Forest Conservation Act, you will have this, this is what the Act will apply on, this is what it won't apply on, and really uh, restricting or expanding the scope of the applicability, rather than a broad kind of um, uh, definition of dictionary meaning
0: right so you so if i understand it correctly let me rephrase uh, uh, what you just said so you are saying that there is one definition of forest uh, for administrative purposes and then there is through this amendment there is going to be another definition of forest for the purpose of uh, from a legal perspective in terms of application of this act is that right
1: correct so there is a there is a broad uh, uh, definition of forest to calculate forest cover in the country and there is a de- definition of forest for the purposes of this act.
0: So you want to have a broader definition so that you can you can claim greater forest cover, and you want to have a narrower definition so that you can exploit more land for other purposes. Is that what it is? Uh,
1: you could. So this is where it gets linked up to uh, you know India's climate commitments, which we can speak about subsequently as well. And and raise plantations. So in some senses, if you are able to bring more land under plantations that will also bring in more land under the forest cover. See, one of the things with this, this law is that in the, the discussion paper that the ministry actually brought out, stated that uh, private individuals and private landowners or institutions are not incentivized enough to grow plantations because they feel the moment they grow plantations, dictionary meaning would apply and they will not be able to, their land, the use of that land will be restricted. So in some senses, the government is trying to unlock land and incentivize private individuals and private players to grow trees which then would enable the broader bringing this land under the broader definition of trees outside forest areas
0: right so let me just uh, uh, get, get a little more clarity from you here so you are saying because uh, if we have one definition of forest and that definition of forest is what we look at for protecting our forest cover then if there are forest lands in private uh, hands and all say forest, whatever afforestation initiatives are private individuals that will automatically come under protection related uh, provisions, and which will be a disincentive. And therefore uh, you want to sort of redefine forest for the purpose of protection only for you know the, the reserved or the protected forest. And afforestation initiatives uh, can be uh, done without interference of the law. Is that how it is?
1: yes without interpretation of the forest conservation act under which prior permission from the central government needs to be taken to change of change the land use
0: right so so here this afforestation is basically for fulfilling our climate uh, uh, mitigation goals right
1: i mean that is one way to look at it if you see it from uh, certain government agencies when they talk about it it doesn't necessarily mean that growing of plantations uh, does not necessarily, or creating new forests does, does not always need to be monoculture plantations. You can actually grow new forests or new biodiverse areas as well. So, you know, for the purposes of climate mitigation, obviously one would need quick uh, growing forests because you need to you need to match the emissions targets as well. Uh, but from, so there, there is a debate on whether new forests actually can fulfill the conservation mandate or not.
0: Right. That's a very important point there, Kanchi. I just wanted to flag this for our listeners. So there seems to be some kind of a contradiction or cross purposes between the goals of conservation and biodiversity and the goals of uh, climate mitigation driven by, you know, growing a quick forest cover kind of a thing. We'll come back to that in a bit. But in the meantime, can you please talk about, uh, throw some light on what kinds of forest land are exempted uh, from the protection afforded by this Act and how justified are these exemptions?
1: Yeah. So see, basically, as I mentioned earlier, there are the the amendments uh, with uh, with respect to what kinds of lands does the new law would, would, would the new law apply to and what kinds of activities with the new law apply to so basically um, uh, as i mentioned with the with the supreme court's godavarman judgment the scope of the forest conservation act had actually completely uh, expanded to any land on which the dictionary meaning of forests would apply this amendment bill basically seeks to bring together what and nav- in in some sense whether you call it narrow or uh, restricted or or they say uh, very cl- uh, or clarify the scope of wh- what the uh, law would apply on so that there is no scope for further conflict or litigation uh, is basically uh, to say that uh, you restrict restrict the scope of the act to forests declared under the Indian Forest Act of 1927 or any other state law which is which is important because, as I mentioned, this is a concurrent subject. Both central and state governments have litigated on, um, you know, can actually govern forests. The other set of lands where the scope of the Act would apply on is lands recorded in government record on or after 25th of October 1980, which is when the Forest Conservation Act was actually, came, in, you know, was enacted and came into being. So a lot of the lands, uh, which may not be under the Indian Forest Act or any other particular state act, but for for X, Y, Z reasons, understood and recorded as forests in government record, they will, um, and this has actually been confirmed by several judicial decisions, these two would be lands on which the Forest Conservation Act would apply. What it would not apply on is certain kinds of lands or where the use of forests has been changed to non-forest use on or before the Godavarman judgment of uh, 1996, that is 12th December 1996. Uh, Certain lands which are alongside rail lines or public uh, utilities of uh, 0.10 hectares, uh, 100 kilometers distance from international uh, borders, uh, uh, line of control, line of actual control, uh, LOC and LAC basically only f- where when there is proposed to be used for strategic security purposes and lands up to 10 hectares proposed to be used as security infrastructure. So basically what I'm trying to say is that there are, uh, there are certain lands on which the act would apply and there are certain exceptions even within that that have been introduced.
0: Right. So one of the exemptions or exceptions you just mentioned is land within 100 kilometers of the international border. No, does this not include almost the entire northeastern uh, region and you know, all those seven sisters, those states and much of Himalayan forest land? I mean, they're all, I mean, it's, it's a very sort of comparatively, geographically narrow strip of land in those areas. So wouldn't that all fall under uh, this exemption?
1: Yeah, so I think a lot of area is going to come under this exemption. Uh, uh, the only uh, caveat here is uh, which it needs to be engaged with, or rather, I would say two uh, two aspects that need we need to really talk about. One is this hundred kilometers uh, exemption is is very much limited to strategic linear. Infrastructure projects. Of course, it's a very broad definition. It can it can include a large number of um, uh, projects that the government defines to be strategic linear you know, infrastructure uh, and national security. And and the other other part of this is it it is up to ten hectares. So you know you will have plot by plot. It can be it can be done like that so there are there are some uh, you know uh, nuances to this but broadly yes it can it gives a large sweeping sort of a, a jurisdictional kind of interpretation for for this area uh, but i'd also like to add one one you know point here saying that you know while we are considering border areas and security issues i think it's in the light in you know in it's it's time that we also look at issues like climate change ecological disasters zoonotics uh, all those kinds of issues as important uh, domestic security concerns and if we actually bring that to the table uh, the idea of internal security border security will if you if you really try and bring in those aspects because when there are climate induced disasters when there are diseases these also become security issues so when an ex- uh, exception is being introduced it also has to be weighed from these parameters rather than other strategic needs on border areas only.
0: Right. I mean, I really appreciate that point, Kanshi. That's, of course, a very well-made point when we talk about security. I mean, there are so many different kinds of security and, and national security seems like this umbrella where once you mention it, everybody has to go silent and you can't say anything else beyond that. And as you said, internal security also means climate security, you know, security from climate disasters. And this is really ironic because the government's justification for this amendment bill is that it is necessary to help India meet its climate mitigation related obligations. So can you talk a little bit about how uh, this bill could help achieving this objective? Because earlier also we made a brief reference to the contradiction between climate mitigation related uh, forest work and conservation related forest
1: goals? You see, most countries, including India, actually are committed to, uh, you know, its INDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions for Climate Mitigation and Adaptation, as well as uh, the net net zero ambitions to reduce uh, carbon emissions. So, there are always two aspects to this. You reduce carbon emissions... Through technological changes, financing, so moving from you know uh, changing, uh, moving from coal to um, to renewables or the kinds of technologies that you bring in infrastructure, all all those kinds of things. So you you offset that, and I think this offset is a very important, uh, very important aspect for countries like India, which are also claiming uh, their right to development uh and, and and right to economic development that we we cannot stop economic development so we have to bring in mechanisms to offset that loss and in in situations like this one main strategy for most countries including india is uh offsetting the loss by creating carbon sinks uh, and carbon sinks are through these uh, are being sought to be created through by unlocking land and incentivizing private players, private individuals to grow plantations or uh, utilizing strips along railway lines, uh, roads to actually grow tree cover. And this can then become uh, calculated uh, as as carbon sinks. Uh, We actually have a target of 2.3 to 3 billion uh, equivalent of uh, carbon capture that we have already put in. And this has to be done through various plantation projects. But plantations require land, and these both and and the, you know both the changes in the forest conservation rules, which are uh, encouraging accredited uh, compensatory afforestation, as well as the processes where we are trying to unlock land for you know from the uh, you know the overall jurisdiction of the forest conservation act, as a measure to incentivize people to to grow plantations has a very very deep connection with uh the climate targets and the government has actually mentioned that in its preamble
0: right so this what you just said you know this 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 need to develop carbon sinks by unlocking uh land unlocking i imagine would mean unlocking land uh, from what has been either to protected forest land and also unlocking land in terms of land owned by i don't know communities or de facto government land so is this also about privatizing forested or sort of forest lands and lands and and sort of getting ownership for private developers because they are fulfilling the national goal of developing carbon sinks? Will it lead to more privatization of communal or de facto communal land?
1: See, see one is, of course, uh, the idea of... So there are two aspects to this. One is there are lands which uh, or rather three one is land where there is there is the title is clarified by private individuals and who are who are not being uh, or individuals or institutions who are not who don't feel incentivized enough to grow plantations and contribute to the net zero targets or compensatory afforestation etc so that is one part the other is land where there is uh, The second part is land where the uh, the ownership is contested where claims are still pending uh, where you know where uh, it's not clarified who is the owner of that land and i think those will become issues when it comes to uh, you know when plantation schemes etc start going on on um, even even as these these processes are pending the third is uh, the uh, the common lands or, or community lands where plantations may be encouraged encouraged for uh, uh, for carbon sinks now here too, uh, I think this this monetization of uh, of lands or enclosing of lands for certain kinds of monoculture or other plantations is being seen differently by different sorts of people by saying that if if it is done through recognition of forest rights, it may be okay. Uh, but if it is, if uh, and in the and the other interpretation is that this actually should not be done because it it, it completely undervalues um, ecological, cultural, diverse uses of that land. So it's you know the whole whole the, the whole scheme scheme which is being thought of as a very linear, clean, easily uh, uh, you know um, sort of uh, uh, enforced mechanism. Is going is likely to be at least caught up in these three scenarios,
0: right? So, uh, I mean, a, a, a land which is uh, which is functioning as a carbon sink uh, through monoculture plantations and so on is a very different kind of a forest than a land which is uh, originally a forest and. Uh, is a forest. I mean, I think uh, those are like qualitatively very different kinds of uh, forest. We'll come back to that if we have time, but very quickly, uh, Kanchi, how will this bill affect the livelihood rights of forest dwelling communities in general?
1: So, uh, you know, I think there have been a lot of submissions that have gone to uh, the uh, Joint Parliamentary Committee as well. And I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that points that have been raised, that is being raised by um, some of these submissions is basically says that uh, when there was a broader dictionary meaning of, of, of forests, it also expanded the scope of the lands where rights could be claimed. Uh, and rights could be recognized. Now, this was important because historically, there has been ambiguity in terms of, uh, and there's been conflict in terms of uh, record keeping on what is forest, who is the owner, uh, and all those aspects. Uh, and uh, there has been a conflict between communities and the forest department with respect to that or the revenue department with respect to that. So one one interpretation has been that the wider the definition, the wider the scope of rights. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, and this is, because of the historically unsettled uh, forest governance and forest titling uh, and, and land title system that we've uh, we've still trying to struggle with, uh, but a restricted definition on of of the Forest Conservation Act actually is by the government is seen as good for administrative and bureaucratic procedures because it's it's very clear what it applies on and what it doesn't apply on. It's supposed to be good to incentivize private plantations, and it is. It also restricts uh, the number of multiple claims uh, and for uh, rights claims that can come on that land. So I think that's that's the whole idea to go forward. And in some senses, this tussle is not going to end, uh, even though the even if the amendment bill comes in, because uh, I think some of the on-ground uh, conflicts will land up in court, may land up in administrative offices, and um, it will be subject to uh, uh, contestation.
0: Right, one final question before we wrap up, Kanchi, we're running out of time. So in the normal course, this amendment bill, uh, I mean, would, would it have gone to a standing committee? Because now you're saying that it's gone to the joint parliamentary committee, which is accepting a submission. Can you just talk a little bit about the difference between a standing committee and a select committee? Uh, what do, what, is it, what is the difference in the function and the scope of the work of the two and, and which committee should this bill have gone to?
1: So, see, I think the uh, this, again, a debate has been very public uh, and has become a political debate as well. Uh, it is not that in the past, bills have not gone to select committee, the Joint Parliamentary Committees, which is basically committees that, uh, you know, uh, that have members from both Lok Sabha and, and Rajya Sabha, the upper house and the lower house of the parliament. And uh, basically, uh, the Parliamentary Standing Committee, which is... Headed by uh, a Congress uh, member of Parliament, uh, is a regular functioning committee uh, which is supposed to weigh in on issues like this. So ideally, this should this, with an existence of that committee, it there is no it's it's almost like there is no reason why this bill should not have gone uh, to the Joint Parliamentary Committee. However, in addition to that. If it was felt that a select committee or a joint parliamentary committee, and the joint parliamentary committee right now is headed by a a, a Bharti Janata Party, you know, member of parliament, uh, which is also part of the political uh, contest that we are talking about.
0: Does does this committee have any representation from the opposition, any non-BDP people? non india people. Uh, to
1: the best of my understanding the membership is of uh, of members of the lok sabha and the rajya sabha and it would have a, a experience of the large uh, earlier committees is that it would have multiple uh, political parties it's just that the, it's chaired by uh, the uh, you know a member of parliament from the Bhakti janta party and the parliament standing committee is chaired by a member of parliament of the congress
0: right all right. One last question, Kanchi. You have one minute to respond since we're running out of time. How, how would our forest protection regime, even though, I mean, I know we had some transition with this bill in place. How does it compare with, say, the corresponding legislation in countries such as the U.S., uh, Canada? We have, which I, I understand have a lot of uh, this protected forests and reserve areas and sanctuaries and so on.
1: I think two broad things that we need to, uh, given the shortage of time and like to just flag, is that most, you know, whether it's the whether it's the U.S. or India, uh, I think the federated the federal structure is very much part of land and forest governance. So wildlife, uh, you know, or or forests, etc., are are managed differently uh, by the state governments and by the central government. What jurisdiction? So the jurisdiction questions that we are uh, we have, of course. And the second part is about the multiplicity of laws that apply uh, on 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 for, which are related to governance. Both countries would have the multiplicity of laws. I'm not in a position to right now compare both these uh, entirely in terms of uh, what is better or worse. But I think in the case of India, what it, what is very crucial is a very deep social cultural uh, you know connection that uh, that communities have. With forest areas, uh, our, our forest areas are far more inhabited than uh, you know uh, countries like the United States. So I think uh, I think that then then there are fewer inviolate areas. So I think that complexity, given along with the federal structure uh, of forest governance as well as multiplicity of laws, makes this a very very crucial issue that needs to be debated. Uh, and and it cannot be uh, viewed as a as a linear process because linear uh, you know because of the history and and the geographical spread of uh, of forests in India.
0: Right, I, that's really well summed up, uh, Kanchi. I think the three points you mentioned the, the importance of having a federated structure for governance, especially given the diversity in India and the complexity, and the fact that we have a lot of forest areas which are inhabited you know we, it's, it's very difficult it doesn't it won't it could even be counterproductive to take the kind of what you describe as a linear approach okay you have a centralized administrative kind of a setup which then decides the law and then it goes and gets executed in, in a top-down linear fashion it may not really work in a country like India where forests are inhabited and there are multiplicity of uh, dimensions and relationships between the forests and the communities on the ground. Hopefully all these will make it to the submissions uh, which are being uh, given to the parliamentary committee right now. Thank you so much Kanchi for joining us and sharing your thoughts and observations on this amendment. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: In Focus will be back soon